You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 687. Compromise for your dream, but never compromise on your dream. Imran Khan. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now guys, today on the show, we have Naomi Beatty, and she is a screenplay consultant, a screenwriting teacher, and former studio executive that worked on films like Twilight, Percy Jackson, and The Lightning Thief, and The Stanford Prison Experiment. And she also runs a website called Write plus co and she works with screenwriters on helping them get from idea to final product helps them look at things from a studio's perspective and helps them avoid a lot of the mistakes these first time mistakes and mistakes in general that she sees and has seen after reading thousands and thousands of screenplays uh, over the course of her career we had a really interesting conversation we we go off the deep end a little bit sometimes, uh, analyzing films and talking about shows and projects and things like that. But we get into the details about how to avoid some of these mistakes, as well as what a studio is looking for and how to better prep your project to be noticed by the studio. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Naomi Beatty. I'd like to welcome to the show Naomi Beatty. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for um, being on the show. I truly appreciate it. We've been playing phone tag for a little bit. So with all this craziness going on in the world, it's difficult to yeah. uh, to get to get on. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on. Um, now, I wanted to ask you first question. How did you get into the business? Oh, uh, well, I moved to L.A. with a, a hope and a dream. <laughs> and, no, um, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> and basically, uh, a week later, I was working as an assistant to a producer manager. That was the first person I worked for in L.A. And um, really just started learning about the business through that job. I really had no I knew that movies were made somehow. I had no idea how they were made or who made them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that first job was really a big, you know, a big part of my education and just giving me sort of an overview of how the industry works. 
And, and you work a lot with screenwriters, obviously. I do. Yeah, I work with screenwriters every day. <laughs> now, how did you get into that side of the business? Well, uh, so after working uh, for that producer manager, I went to work in uh, development at another production company. And so got to sort of really see the the nuts and bolts of what, what happens in development. Um, and then after that, I went to work for Blake Snyder on his, he was working on his second book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he helped me, or he asked me to come, he helped me, he asked me to come help him uh, work on that book. And, um, and after that, uh, you know, I, I feel like people just started sort of approaching me and asking me to give them notes on their scripts. And then it became what I did full time. So Very nice. And how was it working with Blake? Oh, he's, I mean, he was a great guy. You know, he, I actually met him through my first job. He was friendly with the producer manager that I worked for. Um, so I had known him for a few years before he was writing that second book and asked me to come help out on it. Um, and he was just always one of those guys who was super generous with his time, um, always took a genuine interest in people, you know, so yeah, it was a good experience. And for people who don't know who Blake is, Blake Schneider wrote the, the, the pinnacle book, if you will, uh, called Save the Cat, uh, which, um, has kind of revolution, it revolutionized Hollywood. That's for sure. When that book came out, um, and so many people, cause I think he was the first one to kind of really simplify structure uh, in, in a way that um, no one had before. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that makes it sort of an enduring, um, you know, go-to in kind of the screenwriting education space is because it makes structure so accessible. And so uh, I, you know, I always recommend Save the Cat as sort of if someone's interested in learning about structure, that's like the first place I think you should go, because even though there's much more to learn after that and, you know, you can read a lot of other books that gives you like a really good, concise and accessible overview of how structure works. Now, when you've written, you've, you've um, read a few screenplays in your day, I'm assuming. A few, yeah. <laughs> so what is the biggest mistake you see in either seasoned scripts or fresh new writer scripts? Gosh, that's a big question. Cause I think there are, you know, there are, you read enough scripts and you sort of see patterns. There are a lot of um, sort of buckets that these, you know, issues fall mm-hmm. into. Um, I would say maybe for beginning screenwriters, it working on their first or second screenplay, it's not really understanding how to create um, sort of a forward momentum in the story mm-hmm. there they have scenes and maybe visuals in their head but they don't really understand that each scene needs to make progress in the plot or in the character development or something you know what I mean so it's sort of when you read those scripts it can feel you know like we're just observing somebody's thoughts versus watching a story play out watching a character pursue something yeah, I've, I've, when I've read scripts, a lot of times, it, especially from first-time writers, they they will just sit there and, then like I always use the room, uh, the the infamous the room, uh, for like scenes like you're supposed to cut out stuff that is not necessary, and yet there's this one scene that's just so I love that movie by the way is like when he yeah. comes there's a scene where they come into a coffee shop and order coffee, but you see two other people order coffee before the main characters walk in that have no meaning in the story whatsoever. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff you're talking about, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that movie could be really educational <laughs> for a lot of people. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's that's a great example. It's sort of like, I guess, I guess it's, it's in any form of storytelling, you want to get to the point, and you don't want to get to the point to the degree that you know there there's no sort of detail or ornamentation or suspense built or something like that. But you do want to keep things moving because people get bored really quickly. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's really the thing that, um, I, I don't know, that the thing that you should keep in mind all the time is like, what's your reader's reaction to this or, or your audience's reaction to this? Are they engaged by this? If not, like, let's move it along, you know? And when, you know, a lot of, a lot of screenwriters, when I, I talk to them, they always ask me like, what is the, um, like what's the magic number as far as how many pages you got to be really, you know, to grab somebody's attention? Like how, 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 how long do I have before the reader just throws it away because there's 6,000 other scripts that they have to read? Yeah. I've, I've heard a range of things. I mean, for myself, because I'm usually working with the writer. So obviously I'm reading the whole thing and I'm mm-hmm. giving it all of my attention, but you know, if you are submitting a script to someone who doesn't sort of have that obligation to you, right? And they're reading it to see what's in it for them. I mean, I've heard people say they can tell within the first couple of pages whether they want to keep reading. And I think it it is true. Like the the point of every page is to make you want to turn the page and read the next one, right? So mm-hmm. each page does have to be engaging. But um, I think I really, if I'm just reading a script for fun, which hardly ever happens anymore, but if I am, um, <laughs> I mean, just for pleasure, you know, uh, I really notice it if something isn't happening within the first 15 pages. If it doesn't feel like I know that the story has started and I have a sense of kind of what we're dealing with and where it's going, I'm sort of like, ah, I, I don't have any more time to, to spend on this, you know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And and the um, well, okay. So when you're when you're reading these scripts, the description, uh, dialogue, uh, obviously, are very important. Can you please explain to the audience the importance of the white page and how <laughs> keeping it as white as possible? Because that was when I was first writing uh, and writing my first scripts. I I thought it was a novel. And I wrote so much description and so yeah. much detail. It was just like I was so I was so happy with myself because I yeah. was writing all this beautiful, colorful, seventy-five cent words. Even oh, it was great. Yeah, and I bet every every word of that description was poetry. Oh, poetry. It, was, it was it was. I don't know why Hollywood never just understood my genius. I just don't understand right. it. <laughs> Well, I will say, so white space on the page is important. I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, not wanting to to look at the first page of a script and see a wall of black, right? Because it just, it it sort of makes your heart sink if you're like, oh, this is what I'm going to be reading. Cool. Okay. You know, like you want it to feel sort of breezy and like there's movement and white space helps you give that feeling, right? It's, um it makes the read faster, which is something that you should be striving for anyway, right? Um, it sort of helps our eye travel down the page if it's not just a block of black and it's, you know, you're sort of like, your your eye is moving across the lines um, in a way that that is swift and sort of carries us and adds momentum to the story. So all those reasons, I think uh, it's important to to think about white space. And really, you know, the more text you put on the page, um, 
the more the more the more information you're giving your reader to process and that both slows down the read just you know sort of the logistics of reading it it slows you down but then it also you know it makes it hard for the reader to sort of key in on the important aspects of what you're telling us right if you're telling us lots of stuff we're like okay, who am I supposed to be paying attention to? Which actions are the most important? Which reactions are the most important? So for that reason, you know, sort of um, cutting away the things that are less important is helpful to the reader because you're focusing our mind's eye on what really does matter in the story. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I wrote, uh, when I write books, I feel so much more free because I could just write and write and write, and I don't have to worry about this kind of like economy of words. But screenwriting is such a specific skill that you need to be able to get the point across well, well written. Like you said, breezy is a great word. Um, yeah. Breezy. Like I always, I love reading Shane Black scripts, especially the stuff yeah. he did back in the eighties and the nineties. I mean, his descriptions were just. They were poetry, but they're one line, one or two lines. It, yeah. It, it yeah. was great. That is, that's a talent to be able to describe things so concisely, but evocatively. I mean, that is, you know, like you said, that really is poetry. So. Yeah. And, and, and then Sorkin for, so Sorkin and Tarantino for dialogue. Like you, you read, right. you read their dialogue and it's just so crispy and it just pops. Yeah, it, it's great. And with Sorkin, you don't even mind that his, you know, his first draft is 140 pages or whatever, because it's so much fun. It's so fun to read, you know. The walk, what, what is it? The walk and talk? That was his, that's his thing is yeah. the walk and talk. He does the walk and talk very, very well. Um, yeah. Now, dialogue is one area of, of screenwriting that uh, a lot of, well, there's so many areas of screenwriting people get have difficulty with, but dialogue is one of them because people will write the, the dreaded on the nose dialogue, which I was, I, I definitely did a lot of that. Um, I remember my first coverage on some of my first screenplays and, and you know, the, the, the reader was like on the nose and I'm like, what, what? and I didn't even know what on the nose meant. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to look it up. I was like, wow. Okay. So can you explain on the nose dialogue? Can you explain little tips and tricks of how to get away from on the nose dialogue? Because I think it is a, 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 a kind of a curse or a cancer on the screenwriting space, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, good dialogue is, is sort of like pornography, right? It's like, you know it when you see it. <laughs> but, um, you can't explain. Is it? Is it not? Yeah, I got it. Also, it's, it is hard to, to, to tell someone, okay, this is bad dialogue. So this is how to make it better because there are so many sort of, elements that go into making dialogue good, like what we would call good, right? That mm -hmm. sort of, it gets the, the story point across that you need it to. So it's like action in words, right? And then also that it brings out the character. It, um, it sort of conveys character in the choice of words and, and all that stuff. So, so it's, I think it's very hard to sort of talk about dial, like improving dialogue. But since you asked about on the nose dialogue, um, I would say on the nose dialogue is dialogue that states outright exactly what the character is thinking um, and or exactly what they're requesting, you know, exactly what they're asking for. And so reading conversations that are very on the nose can often feel really boring because it's just, it's, I don't know, it's like, it's like 
It's boring. Listening. Well, yeah, it's like listening to the, you know, to the like boring married couple in the next booth over and their conversation. And you're like, wow, there is no flirtation here. There's no like, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. usually if you see people on a first date, there's, there's a lot of subtext, right? Because they're sort of like doing the seduction thing without saying it because they're on a first date. They don't know each other that well. But if you listen to an old married couple, you're like, wow, they're just coming right out with whatever is on their mind and whatever they want the other person to do or say or think, you know, so, um, I, I've digressed, but I think that, uh, on the nose dialogue, um, I think of it as just coming right out and saying exactly what's on the character's mind. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, going back to my wife and I's first date and how we talk now is completely different than, <laughs> than then because now it's just like, look, man, this is just the way it is. And right. and there is something to be said. That's why as uh, I forgot, I think it was um, Rhonda Sykes who says, as you get older, you give less of a crap about anything. That's why when you're 80, the guy will walk out in his in his underwear with his robe on and his socks in public and he just doesn't care and he'll say whatever he wants to say because he's just given he's just given it up. Right, um, right. <laughs> without question. Well, well, I think, you know, to to go back to like sort of the the first date versus like married couple conversations, mm-hmm. right? I there's I'm certainly not putting down the conversations of married couples because I think by the time you've been together for a lot of years, Correct. you figure out that you have to ask for exactly what you want, right? Because, well, because otherwise he's not going to take out the garbage or she's not going to like find your shirt for you or whatever it is. So you, you figure out that you have to sort of come right out and that that person's not going to mind that you're coming right out and asking for what you want. Right. But on the first date, those two people are still trying to figure out what they can ask for and how they can get what they want from the other person. And so it's much more of a game. Right. right. So, you know, it, that might be a terrible like metaphor. Oh, oh no, no. It, it makes all the sense in the world because it, it, the only time my wife and I have any issues is when she wants, she wants me to read her mind. So if I, it's just like, can you, I didn't you understand what I was saying? I'm like, why didn't you just tell me you wanted to do that? I would have been more than happy to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, because men are very simple creatures as a simple, they're just very blunt. We're blunt objects. We, <laughs> we are blunt objects. Um, this should be dialogue in a script right now. This, this is going back and forth between us. And now, so you, now I can just tell you just be more on the nose, honey. Yeah, I just, just need just, you to be more on the nose. Just be on the nose. <laughs> just be on the nose. Now yeah. you did say something called, you said, you mentioned, the word called subtext, which is something that is another area of dialogue writing that um, is really, I think, misunderstood and very underused. Um, because mm. if you start analyzing old movies um, or just good, well-written movies, well-performed movies, um, a look can say a thousand words. Uh, emotion, uh, you know, he put the glass down, you know, he washed the dishes, the way he was washing the dishes or the way she was washing the dishes said volumes about what was going on. Cause he just knew that she was cheating on him or he was cheating on her or something like that. That's subtext. In my opinion, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe the simplest way for me to think about subtext is sort of what's, what's really going on in the scene beyond just what the characters are, are sort of telling us with their, with their words or their dialogue, right. Mm-hmm. Or even their simple actions. So it's, what is this scene really about versus what are each of the characters pretending that it's about, you know? <laughs> um, so that's kind of like the, the general way, I guess I would think about subtext, but subtext also has a lot to do. I mean, it has a, a ton to do with, you know, the characters motivations and 
them trying to get what they really want um, without being too obvious about it and all that stuff. But it also has a ton to do with theme, right? And what the sort of what the story is about kind of in the big picture. Um, So I think another way to think about subtext is like when you step back from the movie, what was it really saying or what was it really? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Trying to convey. And then um, how was that sort of layered into every scene as well? There's a scene in um, The Bodyguard, Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner's Bodyguard, where I think the old personal bodyguard of Whitney and he comes in and he feels threatened. And there was something that happened and they went, the, the kitchen scene, if you remember the kitchen scene, where I think Kevin Costner's eating an apple and the other guy okay. comes in and they say no words and they just start to fight and, you know, and it's just this back and forth of like, who's, who's in control? Who's the alpha? And yeah. at the very end, without saying words, it was just motion. At the very end, Kevin Costner's works like, I just don't want to talk about this again and walks out. And nice. <laughs> it was so, that's it, a great one. it was so wonderfully, but that's subtext in a, in a, in a broader way, but it is subtext. Um, yeah. and, and good subtext, um, is it just makes the scene. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And that sounds like a great example. I'll, I'll have to go back and revisit that one and, and look at it. Another one that comes to mind, and this is a little bit, um, this is a little bit less sort of, you know, pure subtext, what we're talking about and a little bit more just um, really clever execution. But if you remember that scene in The Wire where they mm-hmm. go to the crime scene and the only dialogue in the scene is the F-bomb. There, do you remember that scene at all? And they're solving they're solving the crime as they're looking around this crime yes, scene, but the only yes. word they use. I remember yeah, it. And so if you watch that, you're like, I know exactly what's going on in their heads. I know exactly what they're saying, even though it's only one word, you know? It was, it was, I remember that scene it was in the kitchen. It was in the kitchen. Uh, yeah. And they were kind of going back and forth. It was just like F bomb, F bomb, F bomb, F bomb yeah. all over the place. Yeah. And at the, I remember yeah. even turning to my wife up like, that was a really amazing scene. Yeah. Cause they yeah. said, cut. Oh, I was going to say, and again, that's that's a little bit less like the kind of subtext that we're talking about and a little bit more just like really clever execution and great performance. But it it does, like if you watch it, it does still give you an idea of what can be done, what can be said without saying it directly, you know? Can you give any tips on subtext? Because I think it's, it's just a part of dialogue writing that is is not talked about enough and, and, and it's so powerful. If you if you can nail it, it's so, like that scene, that those two scenes I just said that we just talked about. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, I think probably the place to start is by understanding what your characters are really doing in the scene, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then finding a way to. So it's sort of I think I think a lot of times writers come at a scene thinking that they know you know what each character wants, and then they just start writing the scene out without really thinking about how to construct the scene in maybe the most interesting way or. Um, you know, unexpected way. Right. And I think if you start back there and think about what, what do each of my characters really want and why can't they just come right out and say it, right. Then think about like, what might they do to try to get that since they can't come out and say it, might they, you know, come into the scene acting angry when they're not really angry and start, you know, pick a fight about something else because they're really trying to get 
her to, I don't know, admit she's mad about this other thing or whatever it is, right? It's like figure out what that subtext is, what's really going on kind of underneath what they're going to do uh, or what they're going to say. And then if you know that, then you can sort of build the scene on top of that so that they're going after those hidden wants, if that makes sense. Now, what makes a good protagonist? Oh, that's a that's a big question too. Um, I mean, I think it's somebody that we want to watch, right? Like that, they have to be compelling to us in some way, and that can happen in a lot of different ways. They can be really sympathetic. They can, you know, they can be the underdog. They can be somebody who's really good at what they do, so that we're just fascinated by watching them do their thing. John Wick comes to mind, right? Um, you know, they can be somebody who's really funny. I think that they just have to be compelling to us in some way. And there's a lot of different ways to achieve that. And, uh, you know, the, a lot of, you know, there's a, a lot of been talk about the hero's journey and, and it is a staple of all stories in one way, shape or form. Um, though, I mean, the detective story can't have a hero's journey as much. There are certain limitations to it, but, um, but like a, a character like James Bond, one of the most famous characters of all time, he never changes. There yeah. is no hero's arc for him. He is the exact same person, except for maybe the the Daniel Craig versions. He got yeah. he became a little bit more, especially in the in Casino Royale. Uh, that was just mm-hmm. such a that's why it was such a revolution that he showed his armor. So all those first like twenty movies or fifteen movies, it was just him being cool all the time and always winning and just nothing. He never changed. But right. when you added a human element to it, he it elevated Bond uh, to a place mm-hmm. that he hadn't ever been elevated to. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, I do agree. And I think if you, you know, I I am not so well-versed in James Bond. I, I haven't seen all the movies or anything, but sure. my dad was a huge James Bond fan. And I remember that that cool character that you're describing, like that was really the entertainment hook that people were sort of interested in for that movie. And I think just by the time you know, the Daniel Craig ones uh, came around, it's sort of like there's so much more competition in that space, right? Like right. It, the story, <laughs> the storytelling just had to be a little bit different. You know, it had to hit sort of different appeals in order for, for people to have the same kind of like fervor for it, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, there's also, I think when, when Sean Connery was doing James Bond, there wasn't Iron Man or Thor or the Avengers and this <laughs> is like an obscene amount of competition in the heroic yeah. space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's like Fast and the Furious, like every, like every action movie now has that sort of cool, well, not every action movie, I guess, but there's a lot of action movies with like very cool heroes, even John Wick, like we just mentioned. So there's Mm -hmm. so much more competition. yeah, and John Wick. I mean, I love to talk about John because he's because uh, I know him personally, obviously. <laughs> but um, yeah, me and Keanu, we hang all the time. Uh, no, John Wick, I found very interesting of a character because he is a character where, as 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 people looking at stories or listening to stories or watching stories, we are attracted to people who are the best at whatever they do. Uh, Rain Man comes to mind, even though Raymond uh, and and Dustin Hoffman's character had he was just. A prodigy, and 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 Wick is a prodigy of violence. Uh, <laughs> but his character, like what I found so wonderful about him, is that everywhere he went, people were like, "Hey, John, hey, John!" Like everyone just like they just talked about him. He was like a legend before he walks in the room. I just started watching because I'm in quarantine, like the rest of us. Uh, yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm catching up with a lot of TV that I haven't watched. I just started The Blacklist. 
And I had never watched The Blacklist before. And James Spader's character is has John Wick aspects to him. I don't know if you've ever watched that show or not. Interesting. I've seen a couple of episodes, but go on. Tell me more about this. Because I think because because uh, James Spader is he's just every, all the bad guys know who he is. Like he walks up to him like, oh yeah, I remember that time in Paris. I remember that time. And he has so much power and influence outside of himself that the the world explains that to us. Um, and makes his character so – and he's also extremely confident. He's always 15 steps ahead of the FBI. He's always 15 steps ahead of everybody. Um, he's so good at what he does. And he's a bad guy, arguably. He is not a villain, but he's not a good guy. He does bad yeah. things, and he has done bad things for 20-odd years. So his character is so wonderfully rich in that way. Same thing with Hannibal Lecter. I mean you're rooting – for a cannibal, a serial killing cannibal, that is brilliant writing. Is brilliant yeah. performance. It's brilliant direction. It's 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 a combination of all of that. Because you know, without Anthony Hopkins, you know, I don't know if Hannibal pops off if the wrong actor in that space and it's gone. And without yeah. Jody, and without Jodie Foster as you know the other side, because you need the other side of the coin, or else it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean. Uh, Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorites and obviously like a, a cla- you know, a classic, iconic, iconic film. But I think something that you just said is actually a really good sort of tip, trick to pass on to people, which is, you know, don't forget about the reactions to your character because that can tell you so mm-hmm. much about who the person is, not just their actions coming into the scene, but how, how are all the other characters, how are the, how's the world around that character treating them? Because that says a lot, right? I mean, yeah. it makes it makes so much sense. Yeah, Wick doesn't have to say a word. He never says a word. He never says a word about how good he is ever. Right. He he's a man of action, um, and everybody around him explains to the audience who the hell John. When you see the most powerful drug lord or bad guy shake at the <laughs> mention of the guy's name, you're like, oh man. And then and then Keanu just you know he's Keanu like it's 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 just yeah. amazing. It's the Keanu Renaissance, as they call as they call it now, it's just like he's. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Everyone's finally coming back to like Keanu's really cool. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> like that really is sort of like the new the new James Bond, right? You know what I mean? He's so cool, and like I, you know, I'm not saying that John Wick is a perfect movie, oh, but no. I forgive it anything that I would normally disagree with movie just because it's so much fun to watch and he's so great. So yeah. And and never underestimate fun. You know, yeah. I mean, look, Fast and Furious is there's entertainment, right? I mean, look, the, fa- the Fast and Furious is I've been watching since the first one came out in the theater and you know, I mean, the first one was Point Break. Let's just be honest. It was Point Break. They stole Point Break. It was exactly the same story. They just put cars instead of surfers. Um, it's literally a complete ripoff. I have no idea how they got away with that, but they did. But you know what makes you know what makes the first Fast and the Furious so good, though, and I will I will argue this point too, yeah. is that it's all about family. So they really—that's <laughs> all they, they ever say. Really like, I know they really like build that into the story, though, in a way that I'm like, I can get behind this. This means something to these people, you know? So, and that, and that's honestly the thing that's held the whole franchise together. Honestly, it, it's it's you know they went from car car racers to <laughs> basically James Bond. They basically have become James Bond with cars now. Um, and and 
and now Hobbs right. and Shaw and all the other spinoffs. It's it's amazing to see how how that movie's gone. And I was talking to my wife about it the other day, and we're like, yeah, when you see it, we just know what you're going, you know what you're going to get when you watch a Fast yeah. and Furious. It, it's very, you just know the kind of story you're going to get, the kind of movie you're going to get. Um, same thing with like the Mission Impossible's. Um, uh, I, I was watching. I was watching a great video essay in regards to Ethan Hunt, uh, the, mm. you know Tom Cruise's character. And he, how many? He said yeah. seven, six of them now. Six of them. I think he yeah, was working on like numbers. That. I think he was on six, and he was working on seven before they shut it down in Italy. Um, we don't really know a lot about Ethan Hawk, uh, Ethan um, Hunt. Like there's, yeah. there's, there's no information after all these these movies. It's very little we kind of really know about him. It's right, interesting. Right. Yeah. We yeah, know more about I Wick. Think- we know more about Wick than we know about <laughs> Ethan Hunt. That's true. That's true. And I think that that, um, you know, it, it still works for people. They, they do manage to sort of bring in just enough about him when we need it in order to kind of like, you know, build in that emotion or the, the emotional stakes of the story or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. you're right. They don't go into – and we don't need to know – a ton about we don't need to know how many brothers and sisters he has or you know what city he grew up in or or any of that so it's not it's not about family it's not about family no, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not about family at all <laughs> now um so you've been bumping around hollywood for a little bit um can you explain a little bit about the power of the log line and how important that is to um screenwriters be, trying to get their their scripts seen because a lot of times the log line will pretty much be the first, the first entry point, and if the log line doesn't work, they're not going to read the script. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I think in a lot of cases, yes, because um, especially if you're, you know, sending a query letter, query email, or whatever. Um, <laughs> what is this letter? You, what is this letter you speak of? I'm showing my age there, but um, <laughs> no. But I think if you are querying someone, you know, that log line is important because you're you're sort of cold calling them. You're coming out of nowhere and saying, I have this thing that I think you might be interested in. And you're basically giving, hopefully giving them one sentence that will entice them to ask for the script, right? So in mm-hmm. that way, it can be very important. I don't want to place so much emphasis on sure. it though. Like if you, if, if you don't have a good log line, you'll never make it in the industry. No, of course true, not. But it, right? but, it, but it does help. Right. Yes, it can. It can be very, very helpful. And I think it can be helpful in a lot of or in a, in a few different circumstances. One being while you're developing your story, because I think a lot of times, you know, we, writers get excited about an idea, but they don't fully think through the story before sort of like jumping in, um, especially if, you know, if they're like new to screenwriting and they're like, ah, I can see the whole thing in my head. I'm just going to start writing. And sometimes that works, but sometimes that ends up with, you know, 500 pages of <laughs> we're trying to figure out what the story is. Right. Right. So I think um, a logline can be really useful when you're developing your story idea because it forces you to sort of think through the story and explain it in one sentence. And so it's a low time and energy investment for you to figure out, does my story work? Do I have a story here? Do I have something that can be translated into a screenplay, right? Um, And then, like you were saying, for pitching or writing query letters, a logline can be really useful because if you can write a good version of that log line, then it really can entice someone to ask for the script and, and it can, you know, open that, that door to getting you read. And also if if I found that if you're not able to write what your story is about in two sentences or three at the most, Mm -hmm. um, you're probably going to have a difficult time 
getting anyone not only to read it, but if you can't say it, they're not going to probably get it within, you know, that quick of a thing and talking about high concept and so on. Um, especially if you're going into Hollywood, you need those kind of generalized, like, you know, a shark terrorizes, a shark terrorizes a, a, a New England town uh, during the summer, whatever it was, summer break or July 4th. And yeah. then three guys go and try to kill it. I mean, that's pretty, you know. Dinosaurs yeah. are alive on an island. I mean, it's <laughs> right, right. Well, I think, and what is what the what writing a logline when you're developing your idea, what that forces you to do is to sort of set down your your story in concrete terms and make sure that you because you're writing a movie, right? So you have to be able to write it in a way that we're going to, you know, it's externalized, it's dramatized. We're going to see it play out visually in front of us. And I think a lot of times the the hardest stories to log line concisely are the ones that don't have that external concrete sort of element, right? So there's a lot of sort of, you know, circling like, well, it's about somebody who explores the trauma that they experienced and then they have to, you know, right. reconcile and decide if they can move forward. And you're like, but what am I watching? I don't know what that looks like on screen. And so the log line really does force you to sort of go, okay, here's the externalization, like here's the dramatization of this story. So I'm, I'm describing it to you in concrete terms because that's what I'm going to be putting on screen, you know? Now, do you recommend outlining a screen, a story prior to screenwriting? I do. I mean, I'm a huge outliner. I think that, I think you do the same amount of work regardless of where in the process you do it. But if you, if you outline, I think it's, it's less painful <laughs> when you go through that process, you know? So I know there are people who are, who are panthers who really like to just sit down and explore and discover on the page and all that stuff. And I think you'll end up doing panthers and plotters. You'll end up doing the same amount of work regardless. But um, I think it's, it's, at least for me, it makes more sense to sort of do that heavy lifting up front, think through your choices before writing a hundred pages about them. And then, that way it's, it's a little bit easier and um, quicker to pivot. You know, if you find that, oh, that direction is not going to work, I can, I can sort of restructure this or, you know, rethink it or whatever. I can do that in the outline versus once I have written all of my darlings onto the page and I'm loath to cut any of them, you know? <laughs> well, that, that, that brings us to another topic that a lot, of, a lot of writers get all bent out of shape about this. Um, I think newbie writers mostly is structure. They they feel that structure is going to hold me back. I need to be, I need to be freewielding. Uh, you know, I don't need structure. If not, the, you know, where it's homogenizing the process. I need to this all this stuff, and I always explain it as like, well, um, if you're going to build a house, you need a foundation and you need a frame. You can build a house however you want, but at the end of the day, it still needs a concrete slab. It still needs walls. It still needs a door and a window. Now, you could put those wherever the hell you want. But at the end of the day, you're going to still need a roof. You know, it could be a, a cool, weird roof, but it's going to need a roof. And that's what I found structure to be so – I find it freeing to have structure because mm -hmm. I can build my house and then I can go in and decorate however I want or I have a constructed however I want as opposed yeah. to, to just going, there's a bunch of wood over there. There's, <laughs> there's some nails over there. Go at it. Right, right. Throw something together. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think of structure as as really being good storytelling, right? Because 
structure is the way you put the story together in order to engage the audience and keep them engaged and get them emotionally invested and then pay it off in a satisfying way. That's really what you're doing by structuring your story, especially like, you know, the three acts, right? We talk about three act structure a lot and that's Mm -hmm. you're, you're giving us context and then you're escalating the conflict that you've set up and then you're, you know, resolving that conflict, hopefully in a satisfying way. So that's really all structure is, is good storytelling. And I w- I would you agree that most scenes, or actually all scenes, should have a beginning, middle, and end? It should have three acts. There's something it starts, beginning, and then ends, and keeps everything kind of moving along. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. Although I think that if you look at, um, uh, if you look at movies that, that really sort of like keep you on the edge of the, of your seat, as you get farther into the movie, you need less of that first act in each scene, right? Because we've already, we're, Mm -hmm. we're building on the context of the entire movie. So you have less set up to establish, not always, but a lot of times that happens. It's sort of like scenes sort of feel like they move Mm -hmm. faster towards the back end, you know? Sure. Because we already know who the characters are. We already know the locations. We know the stakes, all that kind of stuff. So we can move things along a little faster. Coming into the scene, we already know who wants what and like what they've been trying to achieve the whole time. So there's less of that set up. So, yeah. So I wanted to kind of just, uh, since I have you here today and and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff going on uh, in the world, um, there's two shows. I'm not sure if you've seen them and I want to, I hope you've seen one of the two so we can discuss it because I think it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about story. Um, oh, okay. Mandalorian. Did you see Mandalorian? No. No. Have you, have, <laughs> Sorry. have you, and, <laughs> and did you happen to watch, and then you might've not had a chance to yet. Tiger King. <laughs> I haven't, but I have heard so much about it, and I was actually already familiar with um, who's the who's the blonde Joe, guy. You mean Joe Exotic? Joe Exotic, <laughs> yeah. So I was I was already familiar with him and kind of the story of him, but I understand that that's not what the entire show is about, right? No, it's yeah. it's it's honestly, I don't know if it's the quarantine talking, but it is. <laughs> It is, it, it, I, you know, I, I put the trailer on for my wife. My wife's like, no, we're not watching that. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to watch this because I have to watch this. And I started watching and she would do something in the background and slowly but surely she would, when something happened, she's like, so what happened there? So what's going on there? <laughs> it is such an amazing story. And I know it's a documentary. Um, mm-hmm. It's a documentary series, but the storytelling in that is, it's just brilliant. It's like when you think nothing crazier could happen they leave you with something else that has happened. Oh, and now there's a drug lord. And now there's this. And now there's that. And you're just like, how is this real? Like, if if I would have written that, you would have written that, no one would have believed. It's just like, oh, this is, come on. This, this yeah. is crazy. <laughs> Did you happen to watch the series, also a Netflix docuseries called, and I'm, I, won't, I won't swear on your show, but Don't sure. F With Cats? I heard about it. I didn't okay. watch it. I heard about it. I saw it. I'm not, I, I, it seems fascinating, but at the time there's yeah. too many other things in my queue, but yes. I, yes. This is what, this is exactly why I haven't seen the the Tiger King yet. Yeah. But, um, but I will say it sounds similar to what you're describing and maybe Netflix has just nailed kind of the formula for docu-series. Oh yeah. Well, for docuseries, and I was going to say for cliffhangers, you know what I mean? Cause that show each episode, and I can't remember how many episodes there were. It was only like, 
I want to say maybe four or five, something like that. So it was, it was a short series, but every episode, like you thought you knew where it was going. And then the episode at the end, you would be like, oh, that's what's happening now. Oh my God. You know? And then you'd have to watch the next episode because you're like, I have to see how, like how that story turned, where that's going to go now. It was amazing. The, the, the Duplass brothers did that, um, that docu-series. Oh God. What was it? The one about the cult leader in the, um, in like the mountains of Utah and it was like in the seventies and they built like this, it was like this guy, he had like 75 Rolls Royces or something like that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wild country. Yes. Wild, wild country. Yes. Oh, did you see that? I did. Um, I'm actually from Oregon and that took place in Oregon. And so I was like, I have to watch this. And I thought that was, a. I mean, it was an amazing series. Right. I also thought it was really interesting. Just if you're thinking about like, character and get it, you know, sort of how do you get your audience on the side of your character? Nobody could have known this, but coming into the, uh, uh, into the series, because I'm from Oregon, I immediately was sort of on the side of the people who owned the land around it. And I don't think that's where I was supposed to be. Like they wanted you on the side of the Rajneeshis and being like, right, yeah. you're just like free love, hippie type people who just want a place to live and all this stuff. And I was like, no, that seems wrong because those Oregonians, <laughs> they really need their land, you know? And then, so it, guess- and then it twists and then it twists yes. towards as the show goes on, it just twists. And yes. again, whether it's documentary or, or narrative story, story. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if it happened in real life, it's just how that story and those, and those documentarians are, I mean, amazing storytellers. They're, they're just yeah. weaving the tale um, so beautifully, you, you just have to stop everything you're doing and watch Tiger King. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. arguably one of the, <laughs> arguably one of the greater greater things that's happened in 2020, and that's a low bar to, to jump off of. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it is is uh, is God. I just I just I was watching. I could, I binged it. I just like I can't. I can't believe this. this well, is think so- about the timing of the release of that. Because, I mean, everyone is at home right now <laughs> watching Netflix. And, yeah. and and then all of a sudden you're like, what is this Tiger King thing? And yeah. all of it. No, I, I, I want to have uh, I want to have somebody on the show where we can have a deep, deep dive conversation <laughs> on the Tiger King and the story elements of it and how it was. Oh, there's like online. I think it was Ed Norton and Dak Shepard are fighting to play Joe Exotic. You're um, kidding. Oh, no. The, no, the. <laughs> Um, there's already casting involved for the movie. Oh no. I mean, every actor in Hollywood wants to play all the parts, like hilarious, even the smallest, you know, you know, gate was it, um, a keeper, a, a zookeeper, like they want yeah. him because they yeah. were all, they were all such a tap is the tapestry, a so tapestry colorful. of a tapestry of, um, of characters that yeah. I'm just in awe in awe of it. But anyway, I, so we, we've gone off the, we went off a little bit. <laughs> But I feel that it was important to talk about those things. Yeah. It's all story, though. It, it's all story. Um, and I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all of my guests. Uh, oh, sure. What advice would you give a screenwriter uh, wanting to break into the business today? Um, I think the best advice anyone can give if you want to be a screenwriter is to write things. <laughs> and <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> no, I know. It's groundbreaking. I'm sure no one's ever said that before. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that that is one of the things that, that really can separate people who are going to manage to build a career and those who aren't. I've you know, even before I started working with writers on in sort of a professional capacity, I had a lot of friends who were writers, right? And 
and even seeing among them the ones who sort of got really fixated on their one script that they thought was going to be the thing that, you know, that built their career and the ones who wrote a script, learned something from it, wrote another script, learned, you know what I mean? And so they, they sort of grew their skills at a faster rate than the friends who had one like lottery ticket script that they were sure was going to be it. And so I, I think the best advice really, if you want to be a screenwriter is to write and, and as a, as an addendum to that, to finish things. Cause I think you learn more from finishing one script than starting 10 and not finishing those 10. <laughs> you know? Yes. So, you know, sometimes you do have to like sort of cut it if you're if you're realizing, OK, I started the script. I didn't think it through. It's not really going anywhere. But don't make that your default, you know, habit. I think you, you really do learn more from finishing a script and figuring out like, OK, what could I have done differently? Why isn't this working as I, like I thought it would or as I wanted it to, you know? Can can you please let everybody know the difference between a professional writer and a hobbyist? Because my my definition of the hobbyist is the exactly what you just said. Started ten scripts or has been on one for five years, um, and then there's and then there's a professional writer who has twenty. <laughs> 10 scripts. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I think, I think, uh, even if you haven't been, been paid for it yet, you're setting yourself up for, for, uh, good habits and more success. If you know how to finish, if you know how to complete a script and learn something from it. Right. Um, I also think the one thing that I think really separates, um, professionals or people who become professionals is the ability to rewrite, because that is a skill set all all its own, and you know there are a ton of people who can write a first draft, but who don't really know. It's, and it's not just about taking notes, although that's part of it. But it's understanding what's not working, and then understanding how to go in and fix it. And I think that that's a whole skill set that really doesn't get enough attention. You know, that would be the script doctors of the world. <laughs> Yeah, those people who are really able to kind of like see the big picture and then also understand where to what changes need to be made, because it's, you know, I think a lot of times uh, writers want rewriting to effectively be like fixing some dialogue here and there. And that's not usually that's not usually the case. And so people who are very good at rewriting are able to see the big picture, understand what need, you know, either what's not working or what somebody wants them to, to change about it. Right. And then knowing how to implement those changes on sort of like a global level in the, in the screenplay. Now, um, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That's a good question. Um, one lesson that I am still trying to learn <laughs> is to speak less and listen more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I think the the lesson of like you, if you want to, if you want to write, you have to write. It's such a simple concept, and it's it's one that I think still you know still come back to. And three of your favorite films of all time. Oh, gosh. Well, since we've been in quarantine the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of discussion of like best movies, movies worth watching, recommendable movies, you know, things like that. Um, I will say these I'm not saying these are the best movies ever. They are movies that are special to me. Sure. Um, 
so just the other night we rewatched um so i married an axe murderer (laughs) (laughs) michael nancy travis and michael myers yes 90s not saying it's the best movie ever made but it has a it has a a place in my heart sure I, i loved that movie when i was younger and um Michael Myers, Mike Myers is just so funny, right? Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd say, you know, that's, I'm going to put that on the Desert Island movie, movie sure. list. Um, I also just rewatched Blue Ruin, which I think is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely say that's a great movie. I don't care what anyone else says, uh, worth watching. And um, Back to the Future, probably. Oh, yes. Yes. Back to the yeah. Future. I'm waiting for yeah. my daughters to get old enough to watch that. They don't, they won't get it just yet, but. Yeah, you know, I have I have fond memories of seeing that movie with my dad. So it's like definitely a both a good movie and also just a you know it's a nostalgic movie. So. And I saw I'm old enough to see I saw it in the theater when it came yeah. out, and I watched it, and I was just it was just it, when it came out that was just like what <laughs> like yeah. what like what there was a lot of that in the 80s like what yeah. just happened? Yeah. Like when I saw Die Hard in the theater for the first time, I'm like what what like what is going on? <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think Back to the Future was one of the first times I remember being like sort of being startled by how good a movie was. You know what I mean? Being like, whoa, that was way better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Maybe that says a lot about the movies I was watching as a kid. But, you know, <laughs> see, I didn't feel that when I went to see Howard the Duck uh, at the same time. I, it was Strange. not the same <laughs> vibe. I didn't get it. Yeah. Didn't hold didn't hold up as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, where can people find you and what you do? Uh, let's see. Best place to find me is on my website. It's writeandco.com. Um, there's, you know, all sorts of screenwriting articles and various resources on there. Uh, so that's, that's the best place to, to track me down. <laughs> Very cool. Naomi, thank you so much for being on the show. I really, truly appreciate it. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. We'll have you back after you watch Tiger, after you watch Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you for having me. It was great. I want to thank Naomi for coming on the show and dropping those knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so much, Naomi. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmWrestle.com forward slash 687. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E dot com.